0: chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the seats in front of you. Um, please feel free, if you don't own a Bible, to take that home as our gift to you. We'll also have it projected up behind us if you'd like to follow along that way. <clears throat> uh, we're going to have a little bit more of an extended intro than we normally would before we jump into the scripture. Um, So if you want to wait for a minute to turn to Philippians chapter 2, that's fine. Um, One of the early things that we started doing after planting a church was to start an in-house Bible school slash training center where we could take men who feel that they may have a calling on their lives with regards to ministry and wanted to cultivate that without going into debt. We call it PLI, Pastors and Leadership Institute. Um, we're at, it's a two-year, six-semester program. It's actually going to be finishing up here in a couple of months. So if there's anybody that would like to um, consider joining in September, we're going to start that over again, and we would love to run another class. But um, when we start our... Pastors Institute, we always give everybody these gigantic, big, thick, heavy theological books. And they're, they're big. Like if you're familiar, if you've ever seen Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, they're all those doorstopper size kind of books. And then we give this one little book to go with it. And a lot of you may be familiar with it. It's a, it's a book called Humility by C.J. Mahaney. Um, Why would we give this short devotional resource in the midst uh, of these theologically giant resources? Because the only soil where we can honestly grow leaders is in the soil of humility. Without humility... We could literally memorize all of the textbooks that we pass out to one another. It wouldn't matter. We would actually be training people that would be a detriment to the church of Jesus Christ without humility. Honestly, humility has to be front and center in how we train our leaders. If we're ever going to have a church where the Spirit of God is going to manifest His Presence in that church. Humility and leadership is contagious and it causes other people to want to begin to cultivate humility in their lives. Pride also works in a similar manner. Pride is contagious. You show me a church with prideful leadership, you're probably going to have a church with a prideful body. And you are probably going to have a church that is devoid of the presence of God because God cannot stand pride. Pride repels our God. So as we gather on Sunday mornings for corporate worship, we preach the Bible. We're not going to go through this little book on humility, but the Bible talks a lot about humility and what happens when humility is lacking. It talks about it from cover to cover, literally, in the book. And our preferred method of teaching is to work verse by verse through books of the Bible or at least large chunks of Scripture. So we're going to start a short mini-series about community that is built on the humility of Christ. Starting with the text that we preached last week on Resurrection Sunday and continuing through the next couple of chapters of Philippians. Um, Let's face it, even though most of us are probably very excited for the new work that God is doing, it's going to take a lot of humility on each of our parts for this to be as beautiful as it can possibly be. And most of the things that we're going to need to be humble in are not the big areas. They're going to be the small things. They're going to be the week-to-week kind of things. And I don't normally give this long of an intro, but I want you to understand that just even a few things that we have had to discuss this week as a pastoral team We've never passed the basket set Remedy. We've always had boxes in the back for people to be able to drop their offering in. And there's several reasons. The biggest reason is that when I started the church... I was a coward that had an unbiblical view of giving, so I tried to make giving be the least offensive way as possible, and I didn't want to rattle any cages, so hey, if if you want to, you could just slip that in the box on the way out, and I tried to um, really kind of be covert about the way that I would present giving. Um partly out of cowardice, partly out of a reactionaryism to some of the greedy churches that focus way too much on money. But I began to feel conviction about that a few years into the plant, and we decided that we were going to give it a try to have the offering be as much of a part of the worship service as it should be. So we decided to start passing the baskets. Well, at that time, we were less than 100 people meeting in a 700-seat auditorium. And it was as awkward as you could possibly be. The the, the rows were 17 seats across. So you'd have somebody sitting over here because people only sit on the ends and nobody likes to sit next to each other in churches. And you'd have somebody sitting down there and then you'd kind of put your thing in the basket. And then then as you're running over there, the person would, would be waving you off like, no, no, I'm not giving. And you're like, well, that's weird. And then you would turn around to go and give it to you and there's nobody in the road behind you because 100 people don't fill a 700 seat auditorium and it just ends up being something that was awkward for everybody. So you know what we did? We stood in front of the church and said, well that was a terrible decision. And that was really awkward for everybody. We're sorry about that. Can you please continue to show us grace as we try to figure out the best way to handle this part of our service. And we've made too little of it for too long. We want to make more of it, but we would love to do it in a way that doesn't just creep everybody out. And um, I bring that up for a couple of reasons. A lot of the things that we're going to be trying in the early stages of the church are going to be trial and error. So please be gracious and please bear with us as we attempt new things. There are a lot of things that are going to be new for many of us. For instance, passing a basket is going to be new to the remedy folks. Um, I I would also um, bring up... uh, Geez, there's several of them, but one of the things that we promise to do as your leaders is if we try something and it's terrible, we will have the humility to stand in front of you and say, look, we're coming together. This is a new work. We're giving things a shot. That obviously didn't work. That was terrible. Can you please give us a little bit of grace? And hopefully you'll say yes. Communion is another one of those. Remedy and Trinity had very different ways of doing communion. We had to look at that. So this week, we are going to do communion the way that most of the folks... From Trinity would be accustomed to by passing around the baskets rather than coming up front and tearing from a common loaf like we did at Remedy. And we spent a lot of time praying and discussing and brainstorming. And this is what we came up with for this week for a variety of reasons. I don't want to break them all down because like I said, the intro is already getting as long as I'd like it to be and I'm eager to get into our text, but it's trial and error. And if it ends up being terrible after trying for a few weeks, prayerfully, we will have the humility to stand before you and say, hey, that didn't work. We're going to try something new. And we'll ask you for grace. And we'll continue to try something new and ask for grace. But we would hope that you would have grace in the process because if you get so hung up on the method that it affects your ability to worship the Lord through communion, then might I suggest that you're doing communion wrong. It's not the method that was wrong. Might I suggest you're doing Christianity wrong if you cannot receive and partake of the body and blood to celebrate the sacrifice of your Lord because the methodology might be different from that which you were comfortable with. So we're going to start in the book of Acts in a few weeks and it's probably going to be a year or two in that book, but before we do that, we want to do a five-week little mini-series in Philippians, starting with what we looked at last week, the humility of Christ to set the foundation, the right foundation for Redeemer Fellowship. And this series is built on a very simple premise. If you're a note-taker, you might want to write this down, that Christ's humility is supposed to impact the way that we follow Christ, and Christ's humility is supposed to impact the way that we follow Him in community. So I thought it would be pretty relevant to talk about the impact that Christ's humility Has on the way that we are supposed to interact with one another as a church, especially in starting out a new work, how badly it needs to be soaked in the humility of Christ. But even saying that is kind of a problem, right? Because humility is not just something that's necessary when you're starting out a new work. Why would we think that we ever have the right to depart from humility? But if you trace church history, and I love church history. I'm going to tell you that every great movement that's ever began in humility, given enough time, departed from that humility, and the Lord Himself pulled the plug on His presence because He is not interested in building up our pride in the midst of His people. The uh, only reason that we would ever depart from humility is if we forgot how badly each of us is in need of grace. People who know that they need grace are humble. People who think that they can get by without grace lack humility. And I pray that we are always a church that's filled with people who are in love with and long for and want to know the radical... Scandalous, too hard to believe because it's so wonderful. Grace of God. I want it to ooze out of this church. And I want when people look, look at Redeemer Fellowship for them to be able to say, man, that is a place of grace, the grace of God is found in that place. So as we dig into how Christ's humility is meant to lead us to be a humble people, and as we grow in becoming a humble people that exude the grace of God in our lives and our community should be the result, and that's the kind of church that Jesus died to show the world. That's the kind of church that I want to be a part of. A church filled with grace junkies. A church filled With people who come here knowing that they are desperate for the grace of God. So if you haven't turned to Philippians chapter 2 yet, please do and we're going to dig into our text. God, I pray that as we dig into this text that your spirit would do the work. Hide me behind the cross that I would not get in the way of what you want to do. And may your spirit be doing a mighty work through your word and through lifting up the Son of Man. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I want to start off by looking at at the very first word, which is therefore, in verse 12, and asking what the therefore is Therefore, Look with me starting in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my... Presence, but also much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Words like therefore are there to connect a truth that is about to be taught with the truths that were previously just taught in the passage that preceded what we're looking at. So Paul is telling them that everything that is about to come after the beginning of verse 12 is hinged on and is tied to the truths that went before it. Well, what went before it? The passage that went before it, the passage that we looked at last Sunday on Easter, is one of the most beautiful passages about the humility of our Savior in the entire Bible. It breaks down how Jesus was not caught up in living in fair world, that his concerns were not motivated by his comfort, that his actions came out of a humble desire to be a servant to others rather than do what was comfortable to himself. I, I, what was familiar to Christ, let me tell you what was familiar to Jesus. What was familiar to Christ was sitting on a throne, being surrounded by cherubim who worshipped him day and night, saying, Holy, Holy Holy is the Lord God Almighty, being worshipped by thrones of angels and millions of the elect who have preceded us to glory. That was what was familiar to Christ. And the passage talks about how He left all that which was familiar for the sake of calling a people unto Himself. We're, We're about to read one of the most famous verses on Christian growth in the entire Bible. But the therefore makes it clear that there is some connection between Christ's humility and the truths that we're going to be looking at. As if understanding Christ's humility is some sort of key to unlocking growth in Christ. It's almost as if it's saying that we cannot really grow in Christ without cultivating the humility that we see displayed here in Christ in this passage. And and it's a bit of a tangent, but before we move on, I want you to look at the term Beloved that he uses as he addresses them. Beloved suggests that he cares about these people, that he's emotionally invested in the people that he's writing to. He is not some hired hand that he actually has love and affection for these people. And it also gives you a beautiful picture into the heart of Paul. He's about to push them a bit as he calls them to grow in Christ. Humility in Christ eradicating any grumbling or complaining and learning to cultivate a life of rejoicing in christ but he does so by first reminding them that they are beloved and that's critical because you cannot condemn people into christian growth you're going to hear as I preach in this place more often, that there is nothing that I hate more than condemning teaching of the Bible because it misrepresents the graciousness of the Savior who came to purchase us. And I have no word to even express how deeply I hate condemning teaching of the Scriptures. Because it alienates God from us. It does not bring us closer to Him. And you will never grow through condemnation. The best that you can do, maybe you'll stop doing something for a little bit. Maybe you'll have a little bit of behavior modification for about 15 seconds. But then you'll fall right back into it and just beat yourself up even more. Because it was the condemnation that caused you to have a period of abstinence. And abstinence is not the same thing as growth. In Christ. I hope you guys get that. So I love how affirming he is as he calls them to growth. Also, beloved is plural, suggesting that he's writing to a group of people, he's writing to a church. Why is it important to point that out? Because this next part of the passage is usually looked at as if it's intensely. Personal. Whenever I hear the verse, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, it's always taught as if it's talking just to you. But if you look, and the plural subject makes it clear that he's talking to a people. Uh, There is a personal aspect to it. He does say, work out your own salvation, but then he repeatedly uses plural terms after that to show that he's not just talking to a bunch of individuals he's talking to a church to tell them how to grow in christ likeness in community he is connecting what he's saying in the passage about the humility of christ in verses 1 through 12 that we looked at last week and what he is saying is you cannot have growth in christ without humility Look with me again at verses twelve through thirteen. Therefore, my beloved, just as if you always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good. Pleasure. So ultimately, the passage on humility of Christ lays a foundation that's supposed to serve as an example of how we grow in Christ and how we experience Christ together as the community of Christ. And he instructs them to work out their salvation. And he tells them that it's God who is at work within them. First off, do you ever just stop When you read a statement like that? Or do you just read right over them? Christian, God is at work in you. Think about that. The God who spoke and a universe fell out of His mouth is at work in you. If you name the name of Christ. If you are a Christian, God is at work in you you so just first let that sink in god the god the only god the only wise god to him immortal invisible eternal that god he is at work in you and that's a humbling reality in and of itself but if he's at work in you check it out that can't be contained because he's god And no matter how big you are, you're not big enough to contain that. I mean, I'm a little bit bigger than I was like maybe ten years ago, but I'm still not big enough to contain the God that is at work inside of me. If He is in you, you cannot contain the work that He's doing because He's God. And when God is at work in you, a metamorphosis of His grace is taking place. Place. And it's a total work of grace. So think of this. If you want to understand, because this verse was always difficult for me to really get, if you want to understand working out your salvation, think of it as this the grace of God is literally seeping out of your pores. So Paul instructs us how to work out God's work in our lives. And think of a workout. Follow through the analogy. In a workout, you sweat. And as we work out, as God, who is at work in, His grace is what's sweating out of us. His grace is literally seeping out of our pores. And it's beautiful. And and it's not stinky like the sweat when you go to the gym. Like Paul says in 2 Corinthians, it is the very fragrance of Christ. God is working in you to make you smell like Jesus. And humility is the thing that causes the chemical reaction. It's the catalyst to make that fragrance begin to take place. Man, I love that thought. I want people to walk into Redeemer Fellowship and be able to go, Jesus, man, you people just reek of christ you people have the stench of his grace working in and through you and i love how it says that it is god's pleasure to do this reportedly in scripture i mean repeatedly in scripture we are told that god is near humble so as we grow in humility. We grow in Christ. And as we grow in Christ, we grow in humility. It, it, it's cyclical. And as we grow in humility, the Scripture promises He gives grace to the humble. He takes delight in this. In fact, in, in case it's been a while since anybody's told you, God delights in you. God delights in you i mean that that is what you are his pleasure it's saying in this passage you know what that means god didn't save you so that he could tolerate you he saved you because he delights in you and he's in love with you i used to have this defunct understanding of sanctification where I believe that God was in love with me only in as much as I was being faithful to love him but guess what when we are faithless he remains faithful because he can't deny himself and it's God who's at work in you so let me go back to the plural beloved he's saying this to you but he's also saying this to us, that as we follow the example of Jesus and we humble ourselves as a community, then Jesus is actively at work in our community and he's producing the fragrance of Christ within us. That's the church I want to go to. That's the church I want people to be able to walk in, even if they were just visiting down for the shore for the weekend and be able to say, man, I was refreshed because grace was in that place. Amen? And as we look at the next verse, you see some natural steps to Jesus working in us and seeping out of our pores. And one of the primary evidences that a work of grace is taking place is that we are able to learn to do all things without grumbling or complaining. And even we are able to give thanks. Look at verses 14 and 15. It says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as light in the world. I want to say something that I say to myself and I say to others every single time I approach this text. God actually expects that we will listen to this and that we will obey it. When he says to do all things without grumbling or complaining, that's not hyperbole. That's not some Pollyanna look at what the Christian life may or ought to be. That is an expectation of Christ working himself out through us, like it talks about in verses 12 and 13. Another thing that I say to myself and others any time I come to this text is that all things means what? I want to hear you say it again. All things means what? Yeah, so when he says that, that we can do all things without grumbling and complaining, he means what? I I just want to make sure that you guys got that point. Not just the things that are easy to do without grumbling or complaining, or not just do all things without grumbling and complaining until there is a little bit of tension that causes you to feel maybe slightly uncomfortable, and then you have a full license to just unleash or at least gossip about the people behind their back, because it's not really grumbling or complaining if they don't hear you say it. Right. And sometimes... That was sarcasm, in case you don't get my sense of humor. Thank you for clarifying that. I don't want anybody walking away with that being their application point. And they're like, sweet! <laughs> Back door to grumbling and complaining. Uh, sometimes I meet people that literally seem as if they would not have any content to talk about if you took grumbling and complaining out of being the focus of their conversation. It's the thing that they default to. I want to make a strong, but I believe a biblical statement that if you are regularly practicing grumbling and complaining, it's not Christ that's producing that in you. That's not Jesus. If you're in the habit of regularly practicing grumbling or complaining, if, if you're in this rut Or if people just know you as, hey, that's the person that when I go and talk to them, I'm going to get a good healthy dose of grumbling or complaining. That's not Jesus. He's not doing that in you. So it's something else. So therefore, if that is you, you are shortchanging your ability to grow in Christ. Learning to do all things without grumbling or complaining is a fruit we an evidence that God is working within us and we are working out our salvation with fear and trembling. And that's important because it goes on to say in the very next verse that God wants His church to shine as a light in the midst of a very dark world. Guys, humility as it tells us to shine as lights in the midst of this darkness, humility is what ensures that it's Jesus that's shining. Because it's not about shining so that people could say, "Man, when I go to Redeemer Fellowship, those people are shiny. That's a shiny group." of people that's not what it's about it's about getting out of the way so that jesus can shine through you so that people say when i am around these people i see christ shining and being manifest in and in through them i don't i didn't even see them i saw and i smelt jesus so i want to ask you a couple of questions what do people see when they look at you Not rhetorical, but also not something I want you to answer out loud because that could get disastrous. But what do people see when they look at you? What do people see or what do we want people to see when they look at us as a body? And the third question is, what do you spend most of your time looking at? Because whatever you spend most of your time looking at is what people are going to see when they look at you and they look at us as a body. If you spend most of your time looking at you, guess what people are going to see when they look at you? Anyone want to guess? Yeah, they're going to see you. If a church spends all this time just buying a bunch of flashlights so we can shine them on ourselves, guess what people are going to see when they look at you? You. They're going to see the church. The point of the church is not to point to the church. man. That's why I started wanting to plant churches. Because I got so sick of sitting in staff meetings where we would just sit and do church so that we could maintain sitting and doing church, so that we could do more church and then talk about church with the people that we do church with and then do church. And all church was about church. But the point of the church is not the point to the church. It's the point to Jesus, our Redeemer. That's the point of the church. Humility. Humility is what ensures that it's Jesus that is shining. And though I am... I'm breaking down these thoughts for the sake of teaching. All of these thoughts in this passage are connected. So one of the ways that we shine, I want to make this really clear, one of the ways it tells us to shine, one of the ways that you shine is by doing all things without grumbling, complaining in situations where others might grumble or complain. Listen, I I want to let you in on a little fact, Jack. Anybody can do all things with grumbling and complaining. That takes no supernatural spirit of God to be able to say, Man, every time I butt my head up against the wall, I just complain like nobody's business. And anytime somebody frustrates me, I grumble about it to anybody who will listen. That does not take the spirit of God whatsoever to make that happen. That's not the Lord working in us but it does take Christ working in you working out his good pleasure for us to be able to face all things without grumbling or complaining and as we do we shine as lights but just like the fragrance metaphor as God is seeping out of us as we as he is doing the work and we are working out that salvation they don't smell us I smell Jesus. And for you guys, that's a good news. I lived in a Volkswagen bus for four years and had big long dreadlocks and I was a hippie that wore the same clothes every single day. You don't want to smell me. I don't believe in deodorant. You don't want to smell me. I do. I'm just kidding. Um, you want to you smell Jesus, though. <laughs> yeah, I'm, not, I'm not really kidding. And in the same way, when God is at work, within us and we learn how to do all things without grumbling or complaining and instead we can we cultivate an attitude of gratitude when we shine it's not you shining it's Jesus that's shining another related thing i'm going to wrap up here in, in, in a minute another related thing that humility does is it ensures that we're running the right race. Look with me at the rest of our passage. It says, We're to be holding fast to the word of life so that the day of Christ I might be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. So humility ensures we're running the right race. Since he's using racing metaphors without humility we don't even know that we're on the right course because the trajectory that we are heading towards is not the heart of God. And that should be the only acceptable trajectory as a community of Christ. Amen? I don't want to play church. I'm sure that you don't want to play church either. I want to experience Jesus in community with other people who are experiencing Jesus. That's the race I want to see Redeemer Fellowship run together. Running such a race where we know that we're on the right course because we're humbly letting our Lord be the one who guides us. And one last but powerful point is humility even allows us to rejoice when we're being poured out as a drink offering. And a tangible way to see if we are growing in this, if Christ is producing this metamorphosis in you or is just seeping out of you, is are you able to be poured out even like a drink offering without grumbling or complaining? Look, just to... I'm meeting some new people here. I know that the people from Remedy know this. I'm not saying this to draw any attention to myself, but I live in daily blinding chronic pain. I mean, it's, it's crazy. It's been for years. Um, I feel it behind my eyes. I, even to preach, I spend the whole morning just vomiting to be able to get up here, to be able to open the word with you guys. It, it, it's it's tough and i'm sure that there's other people here that are in that same situation and i don't say it because i want attention because you get to know me you'll realize that even people that are like hey can we come over and like have our community group pray for you I, i just try to deflect attention to that stuff at all costs i bring it up to say that it's by god's grace that most of the time i'm able to get through that without grumbling or complaining And that's because when my eyes are fixed on Christ and He's working in me, guess what? I don't feel entitled to not be suffering. I don't feel as if God owes me a life where I'm not in chronic pain. And when you don't feel entitled, it's a whole lot easier to be able to do all things without grumbling or complaining. And when your eyes are not fixed on the pouring out of the drink offering, but your eyes are fixed on the one who suffered and made satisfaction in your behalf. Is there any room to grumble or complain? Any? Uh, We could even say, Lord, pour me out. Do it. Crush me, Lord. If that's what it takes to manifest your glory, and I will give you thanks. We have so much to give thanks for, Redeemer family. Let me repeat this. We have so much to give thanks for. So as I, as I wrap up this great passage, I want you guys to follow the logical flow to take this home with you and for it to lead us into our final songs of worship. Christ has humbled Himself, forever setting an example of humble submission to the will of God. We're called to bend our knees as a sign of humility as we recognize the humility of our crucified Lord and what he has done on our behalf. And as we do, the God of the universe starts a work inside of you. But you can't contain the God of the universe. So he starts to work himself out of you and begins to seep out and ooze out of you. And as we grow in His grace and He's at work in us, He even enables us to look at all things that would cause this world to grumble and complain and to look those things in the eye and say, thank you, Jesus! That's the conclusion. It says we can give thanks. And as We grow in gospel humility. The fragrance of Christ is being manifested in us and we shine as lights in a world that's dark and in need. Of Jesus. And that gospel humility makes sure that we're running the right race with our eyes fixed on the cross. And the humility of Christ as it begins to seep in, we can even begin to rejoice as we're being poured out as a drink offering. And we can give thanks, realizing that Christ Himself was poured out as a drink offering on our behalf as a joy so that we would be His ransom. And as that seeps into our hearts, it sparks a grace awakening and we are wrecked afresh and we can rejoice. That, do you want to be wrecked afresh by His grace? I mean, I know that I do. So my closing invitation is the same closing invitation that Paul gives here. Rejoice! Rejoice! Don't be a mopey Christian! Rejoice! Don't be a grumbling Christian. Rejoice! Fix your eyes on Jesus. Don't be a self-centered Christian. Rejoice! You have permission to rejoice in something that is unshakable and imperishable. And that is our Lord. I'm going to ask that the ushers would come forward and and serve us communion. Um,